We're in the Gospel of Genesis, chapter 36. You know, we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the Word of God. And I've learned that it does two, I mean, there's a million really great things, but let me tell you two of them. One is, it keeps you from avoiding anything the Scripture addresses. If you go straight through the Bible, if the Bible says it, it's gonna, you have to address it. The second is, it keeps you spending too much time on an area that God spends too little time on. I mean, you can't do a 365-week series on something God spends, you know, says twice. Well, you can if you want to, but I'll try not to do that. I want to take it. Well, that becomes part of the fun of this, is that there are certain areas of Scripture that you approach and you go, really? I mean, we, we could have spent a whole chapter on something that God will spend 20 years and say, and then 20 years later, this happened. And then I'll spend an entire chapter on something like this. And you'll go, well, but I don't get it. The chapter 36, and I don't want to blow through it, is a lineage. And and interestingly enough, it's a lineage of somebody who isn't even spotlit for the rest of the Bible. His family will be, from this point on, in essence, opposition to God's people. Four times in this text, God will make clear that this boy is the parent of the patriarch of the Edomites. It will be the last time we will see Esau in text. After this, he will only be referred to as who he was. So this is it. And what, I, what I'd like to do today is to learn from Esau by his example as a warning. And there are some people that we could learn and try to draw from and say, ooh, that's really cool, do that. And by way of example, we could learn this guy did some really great things and some really good things came from it. There are others who will do really lousy things, and I, I, some of us are better at learning from other people's mistakes, their, their lives in that matter. Well, this is one of those cases. So let's go to the Lord. Thank you, Randy. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. And the idea of how not to be an Esau today. And then we'll dive into this chapter where we'll see over 50 names. That's part of the fun of it. 21 chiefs, 8 kings, 11 dukes. And there'll be some really important information that if we just sort of skip by and we think, well, God, I'm sure meant it for someone, but probably not me. But we're going to miss some real crucial information that will basically set the ground for a lot of the structure that God will build from this point on. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, I thank you for the privilege of approaching your throne of grace and confidence. Because I have a high priest who is tempted in every way yet without sin. Hebrews 4 has made that clear to us. Father, I want to thank you. I can approach you as my father. Not a second class anything by my birth, heritage, or non-heritage, but an adopted son. As pure in your sight as your son Jesus is, according to 1 John. As righteous in your eyes as Jesus is righteous, as 1 John tells me. As loved as Jesus is, John tells me. And I pray today for each of us that we would have fun, fun, the most fun we've ever had in the lineage. God, I thank you so much for the privilege of this time. May we worship you with our attention that we would seek to understand better by the power of your spirit. May we worship you today with our retention as we would seek to hold information you put into our hearts today. May we worship you with our intention, with our desire to see what you speak to us applied into action and not just to sit upon our heads as if it were just a cap for us to keep our heads warm, but rather something from which, a program for which you wish to inculcate into our lives to make us that much more like you, pulling us farther away from the destruction we are naturally bent to us closer to a God that loves us, practically closer, even as we are with you and you are with us, having accepted that gift of your Son, Jesus the Christ. 
So by the power of your Holy Spirit, immerse me that I would disappear and you would appear. Fill me to overflowing that you would through me minister profoundly to each one of us, speaking to each one of us individually as well as corporately. I recognize with the several languages here that are represented, God, that it will take a profound miracle for you to be able to speak to each of us what we need to hear today. Please do that. So no matter what our native tongue is, we would hear your voice today. And whether that's the language that comes out of my mouth or just the one that comes into our ears, please do so. Let us understand you better, know you more. Let us have so much fun, fun in your scripture today. As I commit this time to you, have your work, I pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible have the final say. We're going to walk through a bit of text, and you're gonna, it'll be fairly easy for you to follow me, by the way. In, in our context to this particular chapter, if you remember, Jacob has left Bethel. And, and it's interesting because that was the place God had called him to in the chapter prior, or in that chapter. He had said, now look, it's time for you to leave and get to Bethel. He gets to Bethel. We don't necessarily read that God tells him to leave Bethel, but we know ultimately he's going to have to go back to dad. Now, it's interesting because what I do look at is while in Bethel or in route from Bethel, what we find is that there are four burials. He has to bury the gods before he gets to Bethel. He'll bury his sort of maid, if you will, the one that was sort of his mom's servant that seems to be taking care of him. Her name is Deborah. He will bury his favorite wife, Rachel, and then ultimately, by the end of the chapter, he'll bury his own father. But I do find it interesting that Jacob did not leave Bethel until he makes it El Bethel. Bethel means house of God. El Bethel means God of the house of God. And it's interesting, Jacob doesn't leave, well, Israel doesn't leave Bethel until he encounters the God of the house of God. What if we were like that? If we came to church expecting to encounter God, and like, God, I don't want to leave until you meet me here, until something happens. Now, I'm not talking about a warm fuzzy or I levitate or I bark or whatever. I, I, I want to be changed. I want to meet you. And it's interesting because in the last chapter, Jacob becomes Israel. Though he had been called that three chapters before, it was in that chapter that Jacob is more than called Israel. Jacob becomes Israel. But in order for that to happen, things have to die. And I wonder what it would be like to watch the one you love die in front of you just so that the child you want to see can be born. I think God is setting us up for Jesus with that story. So Jacob will lay a pillar and he'll depart. I should say, Jacob lays the pillar, but Israel departs. He's now 120 years old. Jacob, at the end of the chapter, of the last chapter, and I don't know if you've thought about this, will have to go back to a blind dad. The last time that Jacob was there with his blind dad, his dad was asking, who are you? And Jacob was saying, Esau. And then his dad would bless him and send him off. I wonder if this time things are very different. Jacob, remember his dad is still blind, would come back now 20 years later. His father's saying, who are you? And Jacob's saying, I'm Jacob or I'm Israel. I'm not Esau, I'm him. And I love the fact that it seems to me like God finally gives him a chance to meet that God. And then we approach this chapter. It's 43 verses, over 50 names. And we'll learn a few things from it. One, why Esau or the Edomites, well, why they live in Mount Seir in the first place. God gives us a lineage in essence to a dead end. And by the way, he tends to do that in scripture when he's about to move to a new thing. Which is really important because we're about to step into the life of the most publicized individual in all of Genesis. And that's not Abraham. That's not Isaac. That's not Jacob. That's not Noah. That's not Adam. Interestingly, it's somebody who isn't even in the lineage of the Messiah, a guy named Joseph. God will spend 13 chapters, a quarter of this entire book, 50-chapter book, think about it. He'll spend it on one individual who isn't even going to progenate the Messiah. 
There are well over 400 different references. I can t- I can, they are like that between Joseph and Jesus. It's in his character. It's in his makeup. It's in his personality. It's in his circumstances. But not necessarily in his DNA. And that's what we get next week as we get to meet him, this Joseph. This week, we actually go in between the meeting of him in the sense that his mother died for him to be born. Mom calls him son of my sorrow, son of sorrow, which is, of course, a name in essence that God will give him when we read he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, Isaiah 53, 6. But Jacob calls him, or Israel calls him, son of my right hand. That one individual who will be both son of sorrow and son of my right hand. And that's where we get to go next week. In between, God gives us this segue where we see a family who, by the way, from this point on will in essence live in ardent opposition to the Israelites. But it is important to note people who seem to be so opposite, so opposing the people of God, why doesn't God have them wipe them out? As a matter of fact, when they're to take the land, because we won't even see these guys again in essence until Deuteronomy 2 again. That's four books later. Why doesn't God say we'll drive them out? And what we'll read is because of the family, oddly enough there. Now, with that in mind, for what it's worth, and we'll read, by the way, the Edomites are part not just from Esau, but also they're part Horite, part Hittite, they're part Canaanite, they're part Ishmaelite. There'll be a couple female leaders in this group, ladies, just so you know. Does anyone know who the last Edomite is, by the way, where this whole thing shuts down? Edomites, by the way, one of the branches evolves into the term Idumean, Idom. And the last Idumean we have in Scripture is Herod the Great, who, by the way, even then will seek to wipe out every Hebrew boy two years older over, or younger, I'm sorry. Well, here we go. Look at, go back for a moment to Genesis 25. I want to kind of give us a little bit of an understanding of this guy Esau, and then we'll go through those verses, those 42 verses. I'm just going to kind of give you a tap on some highlights and things that I've learned about Esau and what not to be. Uh, from the beginning, by the way, in Genesis 25, 23, verse 23, mom's got some trouble. This is a difficult pregnancy. And the difficult pregnancy is something a little out of the ordinary. It appears to be her first children, and yet this is still more than just strange from what she hears about what, what childbirth is like. I mean, it just looks to her like there's some form of scruff some form of scrum that's going on inside of her. And she seeks the Lord, and the Lord speaks to her. And I do find that interesting, not just to Isaac, but speaks to her personally. And he says, in verse 23, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. God tells us from the beginning that the twins she's about to have will be very different from each other, not just in their appearance, but they will be opponents to each other, one standing against the other. One will be stronger. And it's interesting because though it says one shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger, those, of course, would be our natural assumption is that the older would be stronger. Physically, it does appear as if the older is stronger. And hear that. The older of the two may appear stronger, but the younger one will win. And it's easy, of course, to take that to the moment I gave my life to Jesus, and me too. Because the moment that you gave your life, if you have accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, you became multiple personalities, whether you like it or not. Because there were two people now living in you. Well, one that's dead. The old person you used to be, which God then took and hung on the cross with all of their faults and all of their guilt, And the new person, he made you the moment you said yes to him. He made you a new creation. And in the beginning, if you were anything like me, I was 19 when I said yes to that gift. The old man was very strong. I mean, I had 19 years of being a sinner. That's old enough to get a degree. That's old enough to teach it. And pretty much that was my life. I was an educated sinner. I was well-versed in sinning 101, 202, and for that matter, the master's program. But I was an infant in Christ. But the promise still remains that the older will serve the younger. In the end of it all, the younger is going to win. The new man is going to win. 
And as much as I live in Christ, I recognize each day how I see less and less of the Esau in me and more and more of the Israel. Praise God for that. But that was the promise from the beginning. It doesn't say in the beginning here, God says, I hate that guy. Though we'll see in Malachi that God will actually speak about his opposition to the Edomite. Moving on from there, in that same chapter, verse 25, notice it says that he came out red. Harry like a garment all over, so they named him Harry. That's what you name a big Harry. I mean, it's either naming him Harry or Bigfoot. And of the two, Harry seemed to work, don't you think? What's your name? Harry. You're like, yeah, I should have saw that coming. Verse 27, it says that the boys grew. Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. Jacob was a mild man, dwelling in tents. Now, that's not to make him effeminate, but the idea of it is, is that he wasn't a rough-and-tumble kind of guy. Although we'll find later he'll wrestle for an entire night. And I find this interesting. But who better to be a skillful hunter than one who looks like a creature out in the field? So there you are. There's Bambi sort of in the field and everything's quiet. And then he's all of a sudden, ah, this thing jumps out and it's all covered in here. You thought it was just one of your relatives and it just and it kills you. You get the idea. So, I mean, and, and what you get already is we get these two different personalities. We get this guy that's just quick to fight. He's quick to rough and tumble. That's the idea of a skillful hunter. The guy doesn't have problems shedding blood. He's the kind of guy that if he actually went out to the clubs, it's a pretty good possibility he's going to get into a fight tonight. You know, I mean, there are those kind of guys out there. Those are the kind of guys, by the way, that usually have less friends unless they're like him. Which, by the way, they'll beat up each other on off days and then beat up other people on those good days. That's sort of the idea. But then we read that Jacob wasn't that kind of guy. Jacob was the kind of guy, by the way, we don't read was hunting. And by the way, this, this is not some plug for vegetarianism. I'm as much of a carnivore as anyone. If I, had, if I was any more of a carnivore, all my teeth would be pointed. But the idea is that you wouldn't find Jacob that way. Jacob was the kind of guy that wasn't quick to get in an argument. And simply, the word, by the way, in the Hebrew for mild, just simply means somebody that, by the way, that isn't that way. He's the kind of guy that you could actually get into a conversation with and speak, and he wasn't going to try to step all over you either. Because, you know, people who aren't mild, they're like that in everything. Have you learned that? Try to get into a conversation, and if you got three words in, you probably did well. That was Esau. And it tends to be, by the way, Esau's type of lifestyle, you see. By the way, for what it's worth, in verse 28, look at that with me. We do learn, by the way, that dad played into this. What we read is that dad favored, although we read the word loved here, Esau, because he ate of his game. Now, there's nothing wrong with hunting uh, in the sense of, look at, especially when it comes to for, for food. But dad favors a boy because of something he can get on a physical plane, on a worldly plane. And what we're going to find in its simplest sense is that Esau was just a guy with a real strong tethering to earth. That was the problem is that everything that Jacob, I'm sorry, everything that Esau operated from was with the mindset of this world. How do I get ahead in this world? How do I benefit myself on this world? And if you realize that that's his entire thinking, every decision he makes makes perfect sense. By the way, that's pretty much every one of us, unless God pull us from the overcast of this world and show us eternity. Until I saw eternity, everything I did, at best, was to plan for an immediate future, but not for an eternal one. And so all of my investments, all of my efforts, all of my training and my exercising wasn't for anything eternal. It was for something that I could get just a little bit farther down the road. And I thought I was being mature and responsible because at least everything I did wasn't for immediate payoff. But it was, in essence, for a pretty quick payoff in comparison. And that will be Esau. For instance, we don't even have to get much farther. We're still in the same chapter and God immediately is laying out much about him. In verse 32, Esau went out hunting, and apparently he didn't catch anything. He's come home now, and he is hungry. And there is Jacob, and he's made himself some stew, some red stew for his red hairy brother. Well, he didn't make it for his red hairy brother. His red hairy brother comes back and says, give me some stew. And Esau says, give me your birthright. Now, I find this interesting because Jacob, we don't read that he says, give me your baseball card collection. We don't read, hey, by the way, give me all your Justin Bieber, you know, photos. Give me your signed autographs of blah, blah, blah. Give me your, you know, iTunes account. I mean, all of the things that we could have bargained for at that moment. Now, think about the first thing that's on Jacob's mouth. Now, understand, the birthright gives you authority. 
It gives you authority within the home, but it also gives you responsibility. And the responsibility is to lead the family after your dad in regards to the family honor, in regards to the family business, in regards to the family spiritual walk. Jacob immediately takes the moment. Now, can I just say this, friends? Every human being is an opportunity. I genuinely believe that. Or they're completely apathetic. What you are an opportunist in will show what your value system is. I mean, some guy, he's just really, really jonesing on some girl, and she smiles at him, and he takes that opportunity, and he wants to jump into that conversation because he thinks that might be my opportunity because what he really wants is to meet that girl. He's an opportunist. Some person looks, and, and he, you know, and the, this guy's like, I just really, I really wish I had an iPhone 3 for whatever reason. And he's going, yeah, where can I get an iPhone 3? Because I can get some money from that. I mean, because that's his opportunity. I mean, and he, whatever it is, our ears tend to be open to those things that are really important to us. For some of us, you know, we're, um, we're, on the, we're somewhere in the underground or in the overground or on a bus, and someone, you know, we hear the word Jesus, and our heads flip around because we want to jump into that conversation if we are able without being rough and tumble over it. Or some of us would just do it anyways. And, and, and the reason I say this is because some of us, that's a priority. Now think about it. Jacob has been, apparently in this, he's primed with the opportunity that what he really wants is something that he doesn't seem to have at the moment. Now, it's been promised to Jacob, but we don't have record biblically that he even knew it. All we know is that mom knew it. And so in this situation, his brother says, well, I'm about to die. What difference does it make? And it just doesn't sound right for for me because Esau, you don't tend to think is going to be a drama queen. Big, rough, hairy, Bigfoot. I tend not to think Sasquatch, the drama queen. And yet here he's like, look it, I'm going to die. What difference does it make? Now think about what he's saying. What he's saying is that my world as I know it, everything that I'm invested in will die if I don't eat this stew. What care? Who cares about a birthright? Who cares about this spiritual matter? Who cares about eternity? This is what really matters. Stew. Stew, man, that's what matters. I've had some good meals, but I've never had a meal that's good enough to give up salvation for. How about you? Especially when I know that there's a wedding feast of the lamb on the other side. But, but follow me in this. That Esau, in all of this, is operating from this. He's operating from this. And this is the little world we're in at the moment. But there's going to be one day this is going to be gone. Imagine, if you will, that I buy Deborah and Daniela a trip to, let's just say, Bangladesh. In Bangladesh, by the way, they get to stay at this particular hotel, the Uti Uti Hotel, right? <laughs> Five stars, Uti Uti Hotel in Bangladesh. And so they go there, and there at the Uti Uti Hotel, they have an unlimited spending account. They're, they're going to be there. They don't know how long, basically until this account that they don't know about runs out. I can promise you guys are going to love Bangladesh. Uti Uti is the bomb. You're going to love it, right? So they get there, and, and here's the deal. Anything they buy, anything within the Uti Uti bookstore, Uti 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 gift store, the Uti Uti restaurants, the Fruity Fruity Uti Uti smoothie bar, doesn't matter what it is, they can have it, but they, it can't leave the hotel. So it doesn't matter. It can't leave the hotel. So for whatever period of time, though, they don't know when they're checking out, they live large. There it is. Their house is just, I mean, smoothie machines. They have six fridges in their room. Though they don't even fill them. They just have them because they can, right? And so all of a sudden, it's like, wow, look at that. They're living large. And then one day, they have to check out. And as they have to check out, they have to leave Uti Uti behind. And everything that came with Uti Uti gets left back there. And they walk back away. And they leave, and they're like, wow, I have nothing left. I spent so much of my time. My whole world was uti uti. It was my whole world. Now I'm gone from that. What do I have? The rest of my life with nothing. How lame would that be? Beloved, beloved, beloved. You're in a hotel room. This world is a hotel room. And I can't tell you when you're checking out. But you're going to. Like it or not, you're going to. Now, if I were there with them, there would be a part of me that at least somewhere in the middle of that whole season would try to block out any concept that I'm checking out of the hotel. Because things are good here. But the inevitable, sooner or later, you're going to check out. And when you do, what are you going to have? Especially considering that the hotel stay is so short. 
compared to eternity. So you want it monopoly. You've got monopoly money coming out of every pocket you possibly have. Then you go to the bank and they look at you like you're insane because you're trying to deposit it at HSBC. And they go, I'm sorry, that's not real money. Come back when you have real money. Because in the little monopoly world, you were doing well. But it doesn't mean anything inside of the other. Beloved, that seems to be the difference between Esau and Jacob. Jacob is not perfect, and praise God, we couldn't relate to him if he was. But one thing we see about Jacob is he seems like Jacob's got a tethering to something other than just earth. His whole world is not the ooky-ooky hotel. Esau, on the other hand, it just seems like it is. So why would we care about a birthright? Because stew at the ooky-ooky restaurant so much better than something when you check out. What if, I mean, if you could do the math, what if eternity was just a million years? What if it was just that? Compare your life at 100 years. Do the math on that. Can anyone do it quickly? What's the proportion between 100 and a million? What's that? Yeah, 1 in 10,000, right? That would mean for every one minute you live here would be 10,000 minutes there if eternity were just a million years. Are you with me on that? That's if you live 100 years. So imagine if you could actually, in your one minute, in one minute, do something that could bless you for 10,000 minutes on the other side when you check out. Would it be worth it to you? Now, it's interesting because having read Matthew where it tells us to, to, to actually lay not our treasures upon earth, but to lay our treasures in heaven. And at first I'm like, what in the world does that mean, right? I mean, what if, like I do things here and God's going to actually like, give me like bling bling up in heaven? You know, ooh, you did a lot of really good works. Let me show you, you know, the stretch hummer that I have for you on the streets of gold in heaven. Is that really? But then, but the problem with that is then I have to look at God's currency, and I'm like, well, wait a minute. If I were to die right now, what's the one thing I'd want to take with me? It's her. It's her mom. It's her sister. That's what I would want to take. It's you. That's who I'd want to take. That's what I'd want to take with me. Who cares about the rest? Gold is asphalt. Do you really think that's going to be really something? Imagine, you know, going to Camden, take a, take just sort of a, when they sort of break up the road, take a piece of that road and just walk over and go, hi, I'd like, I'd like to buy that hat with this. What do you think they're going to do? They're like, get out of here, you fruitcake. I mean, why? Because it's like, it's just road. God says gold is road in heaven. Well, what's that like? You're going to kind of show up. Hey, God, look at the, he's got some pavement for you. God's like, cool, because we were going to do some uh, revamping over there on your side of heaven. But then I realized the one thing that God talks about that's important are people. The kingdom of heaven is like one who went to a whole field and he saw something so precious, a jewel so precious, that he gave up everything to get, to purchase. And if someone tells you the kingdom of heaven, that's you giving up everything, but the problem is the word purchase. You're purchasing the kingdom of heaven? I, I don't get that. But it says you've been bought at a price. See, God walked through the field. That's this earth. And he saw you and you were so precious that he gave up everything to get you. Now that I get. So what's the most valuable thing to God? You are. How would I lay up treasures in heaven? I want to invest in the one thing that is in any form of importance to God. That's you. Because in the, en in the essence of it all, what will make heaven even more wonderful is seeing all of you there, right? I mean, you know, if I find my old Jeep there, that would be nice. But who knows? Maybe it won't even drive on those streets. The one thing I'm sure of is you should be there. And I, I look at this, and that's what I see with him. So let me go through this quickly because we still have these 42 verses. And you're like, oh, my goodness, are we getting out of here before dinner? Now look at four things simply about this guy. And that is, number one is, is that I see where he's at in regards to what's leading him. And what's leading Esau seems to be the things of this world. That's the first of the four, is that's what's leading him. Uh, and then, by the way, for what it's worth, in Hebrews 12, 15, it says this, that we should not seek to do those things which will call us falling short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up and cause trouble. By this, many have been defiled. Listen, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau. For one morsel of food sold his birthright. You know the scary part's the word profane. Do you know what profane means? What profane means is common. That's what it means. What makes something profane is it's just flat out ordinary. Isn't that sad? 
And what Jacob, listen to this, listen, listen, listen. Esau was born to a man who had the promise of God for him. He was born in the most extraordinary home and yet chose to make himself little when he could have walked in an extraordinary place. Thank you for your time. But I really have to leave. Think this through. You want to be like the rest of the world? You're making yourself profound when you were profound before. So in regards to his leading, he was led by the world. Chapter 26, 34, flip there. We're in the next chapter, verse 34. It says, when Esau was 40 years old, he took wives. Not just one, but a, but a couple. Judith, the daughter of Biri, Hittite. Besmath, the daughter of Elan, Hittite. They were a grief of mine to Isaac and Rebekah. Now, this is the next thing. Not only do I see where he is in regards to his leading, the second is I see where he is in regards to his love. And his love is, he's just going after the chicks who, by the way, just don't have any walk with God whatsoever. And we're going to find that in just a moment as we get into that lineage. And you'll see someone who goes, look, at, I love God with everything. But when it comes to actually looking for love, it seems like there's no part of what they're looking for that Christ is the first part. She's got to be. It's like, tell me the three things you want to find in a gal. Oh, she's got to be cute. Wow, funny. That's the first thing, huh? And God's the number one thing in your life. She's got to be cute. So what if she was beautiful? She was well-versed. She was super classy but had no walk with God. Would that be okay with you? Well, it'd be sort of okay. Well, then God's not the most important thing in your life. Because you're actually going to give your heart an influence to someone else that has no walk with God. Is that really where you want to go with that? Third thing is in regards to where he's looking. In chapter 27, verse 34, of course, this is where Jacob is going to say that he's his brother Esau. By verse 37, Esau has come in. Now his brother has actually fled. By verse 38, he'll say, but bless me too. Please bless me. Now, what, what Esau is looking for is just dad's inheritance. That's all he's looking for. He's not looking for the wherewithal. Jacob got the authority back, remember, with the birthright. Jacob got now the wherewithal for that here. And so with that, Esau, what Esau wants are the world's goods with no responsibility to them, which, by the way, is exactly where any of us would be without Jesus. God, I would love to win the lottery. Why? So you could give to charity? No, because I want to bless me. Well, of course. The last of them in regards to a sense of justice or law. By 2741, Jacob comforts himself by wanting to kill his brother. Because in his sense of justice, the way that you deal with a guy that's wronged you is kill them. Which, by the way, there's a whole religion like that out there today. The idea is, it all works on an equilibrium. If you've done something wrong or someone's done something wrong to you, kill them. You know, it's, it's like, well, at least it's simple. I will grant you that. You know, if they steal from you, kill them. You know, if they do something wrong, kill them. If they argue with you, they should, you should kill them. Well, you know, at least, at least you don't have to decide for them. Now, with all of that in mind, listen to this again. In regards to this guy, how much of this is you? How much of this is me? Where am I? What, what leads me? Am I led by the new and improved thing because everything's eroding, so I need the new thing that the world has to offer? Or am I really being led by God's spirit? Is my love really for you with a giving love, or is it still a taking love? Because it all, those will be different priorities as well. What am I really looking for? Am I looking for God's blessing, or am I looking to be a blessing? What about my sense of law? Am I really willing to let God's word lead me there? Now walk with me quickly through these verses, will you? And I give you this, by the way, so that while you're looking at all these names and you feel like you're drowning in a sea of people you feel like you'll never meet, at least you could try to find them on here. At least that'll be. And what we'll learn is a couple of quick things. This is what it says in verse 1. This is the genealogy of Esau, who is Edom. By the way, the first of those four times will be that he's Edom. God will say ten different times this is the genealogy of, and of course that becomes our milestone to segue into something else. Esau took wives from the daughters of Canaan. Adah, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, Halabama. Now, which one of you thinks, oh, she's beautiful. There is Rachel. They hold their beautiful little baby girl. And she looks at Giancarlo, and Giancarlo, she says, what do you think we should name him? And he goes, you know, I was thinking a Halabama. Oh, yeah, that'll be really sweet. Looks good on a birth certificate, a Halabama, which means ten peg of the high place, by the way. There are some commentators that will say she was actually a temple prostitute. We have no record of that. Go where you want with it. Nonetheless, there are basically three daughters here, or three gals here. There is Elan the Hittite's daughter, Adah. There is the daughter of Hana, 
daughter of Zebedee, and the Hivite, her name is Halabama, and then the third is Basma, Ishmael's daughter. And if you look here, by the way, on this, that's what we've done here, is you kind of see that what happened is Esau winds up marrying the, you know, three little darlings. One comes, by the way, from Ishmael, and one then comes right here, and one, by the way, comes from the area of Mount Seir, which becomes the key for all of this, is that it's reading this and looking at this, and I go, well, wait a minute. Esau actually married someone from the area where he's going to go and conquer, by the way. So I wonder how he got her. Did he go there to get her? Or actually, it seems like he got her here first. And she's like, you should see the land I came from. Oh, it's so beautiful. So imagine this. There's a girl in London, right? And James meets her. Oh, I shouldn't say James. That'll really get him in a lot of trouble. We'll go with Rob. Rob meets her. And when Rob, yeah, we don't want to cause any trouble. No, Rob meets her. And she's from Hawaii. And she's just beautiful. She's very, you know, she's very tropical in her manner. And she's just sweet as, as, as molasses. You just get cavities speaking with her. Rob looks at her and he's taken with her. And, she, and, and he goes, tell me about where you're from. And she goes, let me tell you about the luau's. Oh, and about the way that we do this dance. And these, these, the pineapple. Oh, the pineapple. Oh, and the sand and the surf. And in this, Rob's listening and he's processing all this. He goes, wow, that would be such an awesome place to conquer and kill. What kind of guy would he be? Because ultimately, that's kind of what we get with Esau. But then again, if we're tethered to this world, what people tell us about, think about it. We start siphoning through and think, well, what part of that can I get something? And that's the point of this, is that Esau, being so tethered to the world, he marries this girl and then ultimately moves to her area and then becomes the king of it, in essence. They don't become, at that point, the Searites. They become the Edomites. What does that tell you? And the end of it all, he became the alpha dog. They all rallied, and in the end of it all, he says, yeah, it's all right. If you want to do something wrong, I'll kill you. Got a problem? I'll kill you. I'll kill you. Now, all right, so listen. Verse 6. Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, all the people of his household, his cattle, the animals, all his goods, which he had gained in the land of Canaan, and he went to a country away from the presence of his brother Jacob. Notice it doesn't just say away from the area, but I've got to get away from my brother. For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together, and the land where they were, strangers, could not support them because of their livestock. Don't miss this. This guy, Esau, has a bunch of kids, and he has them in the land of promise, and then takes them all out of the land of promise. Jacob has a bunch of kids outside of the land of promise, and he takes them all into the land of promise. Listen to that again. There's one guy that his influence takes everyone out of the land of promise. There's another one where a guy's influence takes everyone into the land of promise. Which one are you? Which one am I? I mean, not just here. You would expect something here. But I mean, like, in in real life. Because if I'm a taker and I'm so busy taking from you, I'll be busy trying to drag you out of a close walk with God instead of pulling you into the place where God wants you to be. Does that make sense? And this guy, he's got all these kids, and he's like, now let's go. But what I also learned is that he's rich here. Did you notice? He took all his cattle, all of his livestock. He's got all of his bling-bling. You know, he's got all of his cars, all of his Hummers, all of his Land Rovers. You know, all of his, you know, whatever it is that's so expensive. All of his flat screens and all of his projectors and all of his home theaters. All of his maids. He takes it all to another place so we can conquer it to get more. you're done. You've got all this stuff. You, I mean, you know what you have to do? You have to rent storage units for stuff that you'll probably never use because once it's there, you never, you forget it. So you have to get more because now you have space because you rented something to get that stuff out so you can fill it with something else that doesn't need to be out. Remember, that's the problem with being an Esau. I grew up really poor, but i got to be honest, there was a moment where God had so blessed me before I knew him, where I had more money than I knew what to do with. And growing up kind of not from that kind of environment, it isn't like you're going to go and buy an Armani suit. I wouldn't know what to do with an Armani suit to this day. You just buy another pair of jeans. But sooner or later, what you have is more jeans than you have closet space. And you go, well, I, you know, it, it always looks better on the mannequin, those mannequins. We should really get fat, dumpy mannequins. At least you know what your clothes are going to look like when you put them on. Well, I do. Maybe not you, of course, right? You're like, wow, that looked really good on that buff mannequin. Why doesn't it look like that on me? It's the clothes. But I remember what it was like going, this is, I should be happier, shouldn't I? I have all this stuff. For what? He's got all 
this stuff and he's going to go anyways because the land now is too little. Eh, the land ain't big enough for the both of us. So he's going to leave. Which, by the way, tells us why he wound up there. Verse 8. He said, dwell in the Mount Seir. Which, by the way, did I mention is Edom? In case you forgot that last time. So this is the genealogy of Esau, the father of the Edomites, in case you didn't get the point that he's the father of the Edomites in that day. Not the Seerites. We've got three basic sons. These are the names of Esau's sons. Eliphaz, the son of Adah, the wife of Esau. Raul, the son of Besmeth, the, the wife of Esau. And these were the sons of Eliphaz, by the way. And then Eliphaz, by the way, has five sons. Haman, Omar, Zepho, which sounds like one of the grouse, you know, the hug marshmallows. Gitam and Kenaz. Natimnah was the concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son, and she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. Now, don't miss this. Notice, this is what God said. Don't miss this. He said, this guy had five sons. Because he was married, he had these five sons. And then this guy had this thing on the side, and he had a child from that. But notice he didn't call him a son. Now, by the way, any of you are actually really sure what a concubine is? I mean, we know this, you know, we, we know it's not like a breed away from a porcupine. We know that much. We know it's somehow it involves a relationship. That's about it, right? Basically, what a concubine is, is someone that, in, that basically you enjoy all of the benefits of marriage with no responsibilities. If Jacob were to die, or in this case, if Esau were to die, they would get none of his inheritance. Because a concubine is just someone that you're basically there to have fun with. How sad. In other words, it's a total work of the flesh. I mean, so he's married to these gals already. And then he looks, and why doesn't he just make her another wife? I mean, not that God approves of that, but just the same. The guy's like, well, look, it, I already got wives, but I just need something for Thursdays. <laughs> awful, ain't it? Well, and, and from that becomes a son, by the way, that, by the way, will become one of the chief characters throughout the entire Old Testament, and that's the Amalekites. The Amalekites, born as a work of the flesh, will always be, in essence, an archetype of the flesh. And you'll find that when we see the Amalekites, they'll attack the weak and the tired, the stragglers. The Amalekites will always be the ones fighting Israel to tear them down, just like your flesh nature will. And by the way, God never says what you really need to do is get in a peace agreement with them. He says this needs to be wiped out completely. Dare I say it, listen, your flesh will never get saved. And you would be mortified. It will never, it's not even in a timeshare. It won't even be into joint custody. It needs to die. Your flesh is into total domination. And it's like you can't talk to somebody that wants to totally wipe you out and talk peace with a person like that. Because the only way they're going to be happy with you is if you're dead. And that's the way your flesh is. Your flesh is like, look at what I want is total domination. You're like, well, can I just give you an inch? Sure, that's, a, that's the gateway to a mile. And Amalek, we see the birth of him here from a guy who already's got a bunch of wives, from a dad who's already tethered to the world, and this is a fling on the side. And that's how this guy is born. That doesn't mean God doesn't love Amalek, but it does show where he comes from. Well, with that in mind, then, uh, and, and as sad as that is. So look at, look at this, what it says. That's verse 12. These were the sons of Adal, Esau's wives. Verse 13, sons of Uel, Nachat. Zerah, Shema, and Mizah. By the way, I was going to threaten you and just say I'd have you all read the names um, out loud, but that would be me. These are the sons of Basmath, Esau's daughter. The sons of Achalabama. She, by the way, seems to have this one. So what happens is she's got this one wife. She has a son. He's got another wife. She has a son. He's got this fling on the side. She has a son. He's got this gal, Achalabama. She's got three sons. Achalabama's pretty proactive. Uh, you know, prolific, that's what I'm looking for. Esau, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zebulun, she bore Yaush, Yaalam, and Korah. These are the chiefs of the sons. And then he gives a list of these chiefs, seven of them. And what's interesting is all of his kids become chiefs. That's what we're going to read here. If you go, wow, these names look familiar, take a look. The reason is every one of Esau's sons becomes a chief. What does that tell you about Esau? Esau is like, you know, he's like he stepped out of a rap video. Yo, yo, hang with me. Hang with me, you'll be yo. Come, come on. Come on. You're going to be large. You're going to be large. You can't be with me and like not have like the tooth. You know, that kind of. Mm, mm. You know, Papa hanging with me. So the chiefs, his kids, look at Eliphaz, born of Esau, Timnan, Omar, Zepho, Kenaz, Korah, Gatam, Amalek. Notice he was one of the chiefs because he was one of, though he was not in God's eyes, they're one of the official sons, so to speak, of this guy. Yet in that, because if he's a son of a concubine, he can't get any inheritance. 
He becomes a chief anyway. These were the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom, the sons of Adar. The sons of Ruel, Esau's sons, chief Machat, chief Zerah, chief Shema, chief Mizach. These were the chiefs of Ruel in the land of Edom. They were the sons of Bismarck, Esau's wife. These were the sons of Achalabama, Esau's wife. Chief Yerush, chief Ya'alam, chief Korah. In other words, if you, have, if you came from Esau, you're a prince. These were the chiefs who descended from the Halabama, Esau's wife, and the daughter of Anna. These were the sons of Esau who lead him. These were the chiefs. And then God brings this in. Now, up to this point, you go, okay, I got the idea. This is Esau's family. Esau thinks he's a big deal. Everyone that comes from him, he makes a big deal. But then he gives us the lineage of Mount Seir. Why does he do that? Because these are the people that Esau, remember, married into, and then he dominates. Verse 20, it says, these were the sons of Seir, the Horites, who inhabited the land. So in other words, what happened is he decided he was going to go move into this land, but guess what happened when he showed up? Somebody was already living there. So you decide, am I going to be a good neighbor, or am I just going to dominate you? And of course, that's what happens. Now think about that. Listen, listen, listen. Think about that. Because there are whole groups of people today that live, and the whole idea of it is, is that my idea of it isn't, we're going to live together. My idea of it is, is I'm just going to take everything. You can't live amidst me unless I dominate you. There's a difference. By my law, dominating means you must be my religion or I kill you. You're not fit to live. And there are all kinds of people in the world today. There is an entire religion today based on the idea that the world is to be dominated in the, land, in the name of their God which is completely opposite of what Jesus taught us in John when he said, my kingdom's not of this world. Hear me. He says, if it were my servants or my soldiers, which servants is a term he used, would be fighting. The idea of it is, if my kingdom were, so, were just, just something tethered to this earth and that's it, like Esau, I'd just kill anything that got in my way. But that's not Jesus. And you can't tell me that someone's an improvement on Jesus because he runs around and kills everyone in his way. And when Jesus raised the dead, that guy's the opposite of my Savior. So, what do we have here? These guys, the inhabited. So what do we have? We have Lotan. See if you can find them on the list. They're now to your right. Notice, by the way, what happens with them. We have a battle of another group of people who also have dukes or kings. Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anna, Dishon, Ezer. He ran out of names, Dishon. He gives them two of the same name. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Seir, the land of Edom, the sons of Lotan. Then we have him, Hori, and Haman, or Hamam. Lotan's sister was Timnah. These are the sons of Shobal, Alvan, Manachat, Elbal, Shefo, Onam. These are the sons of Zibaon, both Ad, and then we have Ayah. Ayah! Anna. He's obviously the forerunner of the karate. Okay. This was Anna! who found the water in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys of his father Zibia. No, okay, but wait a minute. God decides to preserve for eternally that a guy walked his donkeys and found water. Any of you go, wow, that's going to make a difference for eternity? God put it in the bestseller of all time? What if these guys actually find the Lord? And we're actually up there, and this guy goes, hey, by the way, I was that guy, and I had donkeys, and I found water. Okay, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, don't miss this. Do you know anything about donkeys? They're actually really smart. They call them first century engineers. Parts of the third world still use them. They can find the straightest road, the safest road. Donkeys and mules are brilliant. They're actually the ones that you actually have lead you so you know how to get down a hill better. There are places where horses are so dumb, they'll just run off the end. You probably heard that, right? That Christian camp. In Arizona, you heard about that? Where they, yeah, they have like they would tell you they taught all their horses that what happens is if you want one to, to stop, you say amen, and if you wanted it to go, you said hallelujah. So this guy gets on this horse, one of the guys, and he gets on the horse, and he goes, "How do you say go again? How do you say go?" And he says, "He's kicking it, he's smacking it, and trying this." And he's like, "Come on, this is a Christian camp." So what do you say? You say hallelujah. So you say hallelujah, and the horse takes off. And he's like, "Whoa, whoa, that's running!" He's going, "Whoa, whoa, 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 ain't working." Remember, whoa, ain't. This is a Christian horse. So whoa, 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 whoa. He's on. Wait, 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 wait. And he's running, and the horse is running right off a cliff. And he's like, "Whoa, whoa, 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 amen!" And it stops right off the edge. And then he goes, "Oh, hallelujah." <laughs> anyway, sorry. Right, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> yeah, that should never happen. Sorry. <laughs> Do you get it? It's like a joker name. Oh, I got it. Okay, anyway, sorry. Listen, 
So these are his sons. And with all of these sons, by the way, what we find is that he has lots of kids. And the kids, by the way, he all tries to make them dukes, like dukes of hazard. That's the idea. Sons of Lotan, Hermann, Lotan, son Timna, Shubal, Omam. We have in verse 24, the sons of Zibaon were Ayah, Anah, as we saw there, Dishon, Achalabama. Wait a minute, verse 25, these were the children of Anah, Dishon, and Achalabama. That tells me where Achalabama came from, right? She was the Syrite that got him over. That's the idea. These were the sons of Dishon, Hemdan, Eshban, Ichran, Cheran, the sons of Zer, Bilchan, Zivan. By the way, Bilchan is the male for Bilcha, which, remember, was one of Jacob's wives, or his concubines. And Akan, these were the sons of Dishan, Uz, and Aram. These were the chiefs of the Horites, Latan, Shobal, Chief Zibon, Chief Ana. Verse 30, in case you're lost, chief, then we have Chief Dishan, Ezer, the other Chief Dishan, not to be confused with his other brother. These were the chiefs of the Horites, according to their chiefs in the land of Seir. Last verses, verse 31. Now these were kings. Kings? Wait a minute. How come there are kings? We've got dukes on one side or dukes on another. We've got kings on one, you know, on one side, chiefs on one side, chiefs on another. But there appears to be, we've got two guys fighting. Think about it. You've got Seir, and they're kind of setting up their guys that are large in charge. You've got over here, you've got Esau, and he's got his boys that are larger in charge. And in the middle of all of it is someone else that's trying to be king over all of these guys. Good luck with that. Verse 31, these were the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before the king reigned over the children of Israel. Notice the point God makes. And the point that God makes is simple. That Israel was the last to get a king for a reason. Because Israel already had a king. The king is God. Now listen. There's a big difference between Jesus being your Savior and Jesus being your Lord. And you can live your whole life saying, I want to thank you. I just want to thank the Lord that he saved me. I just thank you. I'm not going to hell. And if Jesus all he is is a get out of hell free card, you are missing what God has for you. Because sooner or later, you have to realize he wants to be your king. He deserves to be your king. And beloved, in this, there was a guy, by the way, that God made special note of because he, he led donkeys, but what he found was the one thing people need to survive, and that's living water. Oh, man, if that's all I am, I'm okay with that. Don't, don't be insulted. If, uh, what, wait a minute, you're staying on the donkey then, right? No, look, at in the end of it all, I just want to be somebody that can say, I found water, can you take me to it? Because without it, we're all dead. Now we have a situation where we have kings and we have sort of the opposite. They're kind of taking them away from the water. For what? Because Israel, their living water was their king, which was God. And that's, by the way, what God will tell Samuel when they say, we really don't want your sons. I mean, you named them serpent mouth and puncher. Who, what priest name? You know, they, you name your kids stuff like that, right? Like Eli. And then you've got this guy in there. Like, we're, we really don't want that. Samuel has the same issue. His sons are just punks. We want a king. And Samuel's all bent out about it. And God says, stop. But you really think the problem is that they've denied you? They've rejected you? They rejected me. I'm their king, not you. God knows better. Hey, look, at when you choose to have anything, even if you think it's you, make all your decisions, why are you denying God? Who, by the way, invented you and knows you better than anyone. Anyone. You think you know yourself so well? Wait till you discover today what you're about to discover about yourself. So we have these guys, and by the way, which would we have eight kings. And notice, basically, death stops them, and that's the difference. For those of you who've come for the first time, every week is not a lineage. This is the only week we have this year, but you know what? We will not avoid it. It's in Scripture. God knows it. What we have is we have this guy. Look at verse 32. Belah, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom. We'll find Beor, by the way, later on in Numbers. The name of, his, of the city was Dinhaba. Din when Bilal died, Yobab, Yobab, he's from Jersey, Yobab, the son of Zerah of Basra reigned in his place. When Yobab died, Husham, the land of the Temanites, reigned in his place. And when Husham died, Hadad, the son of, Zed, of, of Bedad, who attacked Midian in the field of Moab, so we know this guy to be someone who doesn't have a problem conquering things, reigned in his place. When the city was Avit, Hadad died, Shniah, of Masarakah reigned in his place. And when Samla Sam died, Saul of Rehoboth by the river reigned in his place. And we'll find When Saul died, Ben-Hanan, the son of Achbor, reigned in his place. And when Baal-Hanan, the son of Achbor, died, Hadal reigned in his place. And the name of the city was Pau. 
wife's name was Mechetabel, the daughter of Matrid, the daughter of Mezahav. By the way, we read, by the way, why does God even tell us about his wife and her lineage? Because he's setting us up for something in time to come. I'll let you listen to that. These are the names of the chiefs of Esau, according to the families and the places of their names. Chief Timna, Chief Alva, which of course you're aware of as one of the chipmunks, uh, and Chief Yetet. Chief Ahalabama, wait a minute, did you get that in verse 41? Who is Ahalabama? His wife. Guess what? She's a chief. Chief Ahalabama. Listen to your mom. She's a chief. Chief Elah, Chief Pinon, Chief Pinadia. Some of you are like, oh, don't let my mom hear that one. Chief Timan, Chief Midzar, Chief Migdiel, Chief Iram. These were the chiefs of Edom according to their dwelling place in the land of their possessions. And by the way, in case you miss it the other three times or four times, verse 1, verse 8, verse 9, verse 19, and verse 31, Esau is the father of the Edomites. We will not see that name mentioned again, Edomites, until chapter 2 of Deuteronomy, four, chap- four books later. We will not see Esau for quite a while, only in reference to these people. Beloved, listen, as we go to prayer, you're going, wow, we went through a lot of names. We sure did. But here in the end of it all, this is what we learn. Esau was some guy that lived on earth, tethered to the earth. His world was earth, and that was it. And the day that he checks out, he leaves nothing behind. He leaves nothing for him to gain when he gets there. Esau could never have said to live as Christ and to die as gain. And until you can say to live as Christ, you'll never be able to say to die as gain. Because all you've got is this world. And when you die, you check out and you leave everything behind. Is that what you want? To be king of the temporary? To be chief of the, of the transitive? King of the hill that's about to be cast into the sea? Hey, I'm not telling you, well, then, just why don't you just go and eat yogurt up on a hill and wait for the Lord to come back. Occupy until he comes, man. Be about his business. Because in the end of it all, I want to be able to stand before the Lord and at least be able to say, I told you guys the truth. I didn't skip scripture because I don't think there's any scripture God put in there. And he said, well, let's let them figure out what that's for. And in the end of it all, beloved, I want to give you the whole counsel of God, which included a whole lineage here. God's friends. Now, look at this is a guy that hates God. This is a guy who despises his birthright. This is a guy, listen, listen, listen. This is a guy who hates God's people that God knows every child he's had. God knows where he moved to. He knows the families of the people he's involved in enough to listen. Do you think there's a reason for that? Because he doesn't want him in hell either. Or he would have said, oh yeah, then there's that jerk. Let's not even talk about him. They're going to be a perpetual enemy. God will say that upon Edom, I'll cast my shoe. Which, by the way, if you know anything, is about as big of an insult. I mean, if you were French, that'd be like saying, so you, I clear my sinuses. I mean, that's the idea. You know? I mean, God trash talks these people, but he loves them. That's the point. He still loves them. Yeah, I'll let you think about that for a second. (laughs) Sorry. Hey, listen, listen, friends. Listen, as we go go to prayer, what about you? I mean, where are you at? Is your whole world this one? Is that all you got? That ain't enough. I don't want to leave you with that. Here's a God who died with you, that died for you to be with you. Don't tell me he's a God of anger and scorn. He'd rather die than live without you. What a mess. He's a God who, but he's not also a man be pamby God of love that will let you do anything and not say, well, you don't have to go to account for that. Esau will still have to stand before God in judgment, but in the end of it all, God's going to give him option after option. He was born into a family with a promise, and his dad, who had that promise, favored him. God, man, don't do that. Don't die before God empty-handed and say, you know what? Wow, I really wish I had gone back and spent less time chasing after this because the people I really said I loved, I didn't. Have you even accepted that gift of Christ? Now, here's one last thing, please. If people say, well, the Bible's just a bunch of hand-me-down stories, would hand-me-down stories give you 50 names and a lineage like this? Do you really think some bored Jewish man told some other bored Jewish guy who told his bored Jewish kids, who told their bored Jewish cousins, who told someone who finally could write that this, and they're like, oh, yeah, and by the way, there's 50 names of somebody who, by the way, hates us. By that point, they're all dead. 
So it isn't like you're going to want to watch out for these guys. They're all dead. They're really no threat at this point. And, and I, the reason I say that is, is that this is not just some bunch of stories that God concocted to make us behave. God knows names. He takes names, including yours. God's yours. And the Bible says he's the good shepherd and he calls his sheep by name. Do you hear him calling you? You specifically, not just two Calvary chaplains. Will you pray with me? God, I want to thank you so much for this text. And God, I, I recognize in it, Lord, we've, we've, we've just scanned the life of Esau. But Lord, we don't want to be Esau. We don't want to be this person that you would say in your own commentary about his life that he was profane. That he was just someone really in the essence of life just was only interested in making a difference in this life but had no interest in the really the check, what happens when he checks out. So God, I just pray right now for every person here, first of all, for Christians, myself included, that we would be people that really are genuine about what it really means to follow you. What it really means, Lord, to have an eternal perspective and make us opportunists, Lord, for those things which matter most. Those moments when we're able to bring the gospel in, even in a very organic way, but in a way, Lord, so that people can understand it. Jesus, you taught me that throughout of all scripture. It just seems like you took moments where you were right where you were, and you were an opportunist to teach us right there at a sheep gate to teach us about what it means to be a sheep or you as a shepherd. Lord, I, I just pray as you walk through a field, as you teach us what it's like for your word to, to, to grow in us like seed grows among different soil types. And how we could look around us and go, wow, you just took the opportunities you had around us, around you, and you were opportunistic to teach and to lead. And But you waited until the world was paved by Rome, where it spoke one language, the only time in history since Babel. Where the world, through Babylon initially, had a world mindset, and then you sent your son to die. And you were opportunistic, knowing that this would be the moment when your gospel could go forth in one language, and the roads had already been paved by people who didn't even memorize them. Thank you, Lord, for allowing the unsaved world to fund your mission project. And God, I, I want to be such an opportunist. Lord, that would, by love for you, seek those moments, Lord, where something really would be profane. Not where I can get ahead, but where you can be profaned in our lives. But here within the sound of my voice, if you've never accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, I'm not asking you to shave your head and sell flowers at an airport. I'm not asking you to put mustard or a big dot on the front of your head or for you to roll around on broken glass or to throw yourself prostrate before people to prove anything. What I'm asking is will you accept the gift God gave of his only begotten son who died on the cross for your guilt and then rose again to offer you new life, he as your king. And if you're willing to accept that gift, God is willing to wash you clean of all your guilt and to make you a new creation that the old would pass away and the new would come and that the new would stand victorious as the older will ultimately have to submit to the younger. And if that's you, I just want to lead you in a prayer. And, and I ask you to listen. I don't ask you to repeat because I don't think you really think about what would be said if you do. But as I pray this prayer, listen intently. And if the Holy Spirit confirms in your heart that this is the truth, I ask you just to simply give a simple, resounding amen. And what you're saying is, I agree, let that be my prayer, so be it in my life. So listen with, with discrimination, listen. And here it is. God, I, I confess to you, I'm not perfect, you know that. I've done wrong. If you know everything, you already know it. I know it better than you. But if you're perfectly right, then you have the right to punish all wrongdoing, which includes mine. But as you're perfectly loved, you took all of my crimes and you punished them on your only begotten son, Jesus the Christ. So that I don't have to take that punishment because somehow in your infinite grace, you've chosen to allow the only innocent person in all eternity, you, to pay the price for me, even though I've offended you by sin. And his death completely proves that all of those sins were paid for and they're absolutely but as you promised in Scripture, he rose again three days later, proving that not only has my 
sentence been paid? Not only has my fee been conquered, but that you offer me a new life on the other side. One that is more than just attached to this world, but that is attached to eternity, to a God who owns heaven, and to a relationship with the one who won the fee. So God, please, right now, change me. Take, Lord, who I was and lay them to rest and make me the new thing you desire to make me, perfect and pure in your sight, adopted as your son, loved deeply and transformed, washed in your beauty. And I say yes to your gift of Jesus, yes to this new life. And though I may not understand all of it or even much of it, I do know this, I need you, and if you're willing to give me such a gift, I would be a fool to say no. So I say yes. Have me now and live in Jesus' name. And if you agree, I simply ask you to pray. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, friends.